Good morning, uh, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Um, welcome to this, uh, the fourth in our series of the coming of age of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda 21 in 2021. The point of these series, and this is, as I said, is the fourth one, um, is that we are looking at uh, the women and the men behind or at the front lines of the uh, implementation and realization of the word and spirit of Resolution 1325 of the Security, UN Security Council on Women, Peace and Security, and the agenda around, around it that has evolved, which is essentially putting a human lens on our, our understanding of conflicts and violence and, and new forms of, of extremism out, uh, out in the world, the humanitarian dimensions, the, the questions of uh, justice and impunity, as well as very much the recognition that women um, peace builders often, uh, women lawyers, women human rights defenders are really at the forefront of this work. They're often invisible in, 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 in terms of the international media and the mainstream understanding of these issues, but they are there and they're active, um, changing the future, if you want, setting the course for the future in terms of how the, how these issues are, are addressed globally and locally. Um, today I have a, a, the a great pleasure of, of hosting three extraordinary women. Um, who I'll introduce in, in just a moment. But, uh, but first, I want to thank uh, the LSC Center for Women, Peace and Security, obviously, which is which is hope, sort of the, where the series is housed, the LSC events team, and who will be putting all this information on, on podcast and um, recorded uh, for, for later viewing, as well as on Facebook. And um, um, uh, our colleagues and friends at the Center for uh, Feminist Foreign Policy and uh, ICANN and the WASP Network, the International Civil Society Action Network, and the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership, who are co-hosting these sessions with us. Um, with that, uh, I'm going to turn to to introduce my guests. Um, first off, the Chief Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, uh, Fatou Bensouda. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and for taking the time. Um, I don't think you need many introductions. Your accolades are very well known, but um, just to say that when you were uh, selected or elected for the for the ICC, the entire African continent, uh, the AU was was behind you, and and you are the first woman in the job. So so it's going to be fascinating to to talk to you. So it's, it's a great privilege to have you, um, Mona Lohman, founder of Food for Humanity um, in Yemen, a, a longtime colleague, and doing extraordinary work in Yemen throughout the conflict, um, involved in the peace process, doing humanitarian work, doing COVID work. Um, and, and so it's, it's great to have you again. I know you, it's very, very busy times with, in the context of Yemen. And um, Hamsatu Alamin, founder um, of the Alamin Foundation in Nigeria, working in Maiduguri with an um, unbelievably well-recognized and, and highly respected colleague um, who, anytime I talk to anybody in Nigeria about what's going on with Boko Haram, uh, they, they say, ah, oh, Mama Hamsatu, and, and uh and you have your own moniker of, of Mama Boko Haram, which we will come to in a minute um, about that. So it's lovely to have you all. The format is going to be conversational. Um, for those of you who are listening, uh, please post your um, uh, questions um, in the in the chat. Tell us who you are, and and, and we will try and get through to them um, uh, as as time allows. Um, I'm going to start very. Uh, on a personal note, um, and I'll start with um, Mona. Mona, tell us, tell me about what you do and what you did before the war. Once you told me that you were a, a poet, how does a poet become a humanitarian actor? 
Well, thank you very much, Sanam, and uh, thank you for the introduction. I'm really honored to be here with you today uh, with this extraordinary um, uh, distinguished uh, panel. Thank you also for LSE for uh, giving us the space. Um, well, I think that um, it's been a journey. Um, I, I um, started my life as being um, uh, very interested in uh, literature and poetry and self-development. Um, and I think that brought me more uh, into the community um, and uh, being up, um, upraised in the UK, I was always attached with the history, uh, history and the community and society of, of Yemen. So when I came back, um, I was really uh, deep into the into the society with the volunteer work. When the um, and I learned at a very young age, especially with my intellectual uh, Lukman family, who are mainly uh, into the um, uh, very cultural um, uh, and um, intellectual family. I learned the power of words um, as a tool for nonviolence uh, and the strength of, of uh, writing. When the, the uh, war began in Yemen, uh, it was gradual. Uh, we already had tensions and uh, before that, we would be lying if we didn't uh, see it coming. Uh, and so we were already kind of working on uh, trans, uh, trying to bring the community together and bridge the difference and prevent violence. At uh, that time, I uh, was in the city of Taiz, which is still a city um, besieged under uh, uh, both the Houthi group who are um, controlling the sides of the city and also factions backed by the government in, inside um, the city. This has caused a lot of crossfire, snipers, shelling, and a lot of death. And I saw a lot of death around me, specifically women and children up to, up to now for the past five, more than five years. As the war escalated, the state institutions started to disappear, and it was us, really, the women who were just left there to gather the pieces of what remained. So um, I think that really started um, my thinking of having a more strategic um, uh, initiative, and that's where I started Food for Humanity. But it really was the uh, watching the youth joining the battles that really broke my heart. Um, they told them to leave their pens and carry their rifles and clashing cuffs. And that really broke my heart. And I started trying to mobilize the, the youth into volunteerism uh, instead, of, um, instead of joining the battles. So that's how it really started. I will stop there. Over Thank you. To you thank, thank you very much, Mona. Fascinating. Um, and I totally resonate on the literature um, side as well. I did a literature degree as well to begin with. Um, Hamsatu, when, when Mona talks about um, the state disappeared and, and women were left to pick up the pieces and you saw she sees the young men going off or being recruited um, and it breaks her heart. Does that resonate with you? Is that, is that familiar to you in my degree in the northern areas of Nigeria? Tell us, tell us your story. Well, um, as stated, I am, uh, I'm an educator and then a writer. At the same time, an activist. So I'm um, People call me Mama Boko Haram because, in fact, with my age and then the kind of work I do in that part of the country, I am a mama to almost everybody. But with the escalation of violence and then the government's response to um, uh, counter the violence, which aided even the recruitment base of the insurgents, I started then thought it wise to go deep into the communities and then find out who are these young men who are 
who have turned violent and why are they being kind of doing this kind of thing? Because I believe that someone has to do something to stop it. And it was a time when nobody was actually doing anything. Everybody was running away from the community. People were relocating, no journalists, no reporters, no nothing. That was when I started going there. And then it was very, very risky for me initially. But as I go, these boys also understood that I am really harmless because I go to sympathize with the women and then listen to them. So they started calling me mama and then with their guns, when they see me, they come and then talk to me, telling me their own stories and then perspective. It was then that I really understand no matter how bad we consider someone, that person wants a listening ear. They want someone who can listen to them and then understand their perspective. And then the whole community also wants to know and then listen from the boys, but everybody is afraid. They cannot reach out. So wherever they meet me, I'm able to give them first-hand some of this information. So I became popularly called Mama Boko Haram and others. And then at my Alamin Foundation, as violence escalates, of course, we women are the most affected. So therefore, I now focus on education and then human rights approach to peace building. Hence, I now focus on the people who are directly affected. Take women, for example. I became now the sole initiator and then the owner. In fact, I enjoy the privilege of being an initiator and then the owner of several networks of vulnerable women, like wives and then mothers of victims of disappearances separately. Then I have another network of um, uh, former detainees, men, women, children, boys and girls separately. Then I have another network of survivors of the extremist abduction and sexual violence. And then in addition to those ones, I have out of them another network of women who have suffered the violations from the extremists and at the same time suffered the same abuses from the hands of the state actors, the vigilantes, and then the Nigerian security forces. So in a nutshell, I'm a mother, I am a mama, in fact, to everybody because what I the kind of thing I do in fact focuses uh, focuses on the, uh, or touches on the lives of everybody and then in my peace education work now I focus on changing the narratives of the Boko Haram from Boko Haram to Boko Haram to bring an understanding that people what make people to call haram, uh, it Haram is not actually Haram in fact the Boko itself is in consonance with the Islamic principles and then we brought the young children in Islamic schools and focus on them to catch them young with the message of peace, tolerance and peaceful coexistence. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, mama to everybody. Um, um, uh, Chief, uh, Chief Prosecutor uh, Bensudo or Fatu, if I may, um, when you hear these stories from the ground and then where, where you are and how you you know, how you got to where you, how, what's your story? How did you become, how did, how did the, your life journey take you to the ICC? Um, allow me first, let me thank you again for, for inviting me, Sanam, and also to, the, to your team uh, for giving me the opportunity to, to participate. For me, it's really uh, a pleasure to, to be on this panel and especially with such ex- esteemed colleagues um, it's it's truly a pleasure. Uh, l- let me let me just um, say that uh, being here at the at the at the Hague at the International Criminal Court, um, 
and being the prosecutor, uh, trying to fight for justice for these very um, serious crimes, atrocity crimes, um, and especially when it concerns issues of uh, domestic violence, uh, uh, sexual and gender-based crimes. I would say that this is, uh, it traces back to my late years when I was uh, at home, uh, even prior to going to university. Um, this is, uh, this was, uh, I mean, this is, there is something innate uh, for me in, in ensuring, wanting to see that justice is, is done, especially for those who could not represent themselves, those who could not be uh, um, uh, present, those who, who did not easily have access to justice. And uh, for me, uh, this was uh, particularly uh, something that kind of inspired me. And I remember at a very, very early, early age, um, I, uh, I, I just wanted to, to ensure that I play a role. Mm-hmm. But particularly when I was uh, um, a clerk of court at, uh, the, at our domestic courts, after I finished uh, university and acted as um, a clerk of court then, and I saw several women appearing before the courts. Um, in cases of victim, uh, victims of sexual and, and domestic violence. And I could also observe that most of these uh, women were, were being represented by men. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but I just thought that as a, as a woman, uh, there is, uh, I, I would be able to relate more to, to, to them than uh, our male counterparts. And I, I also uh, saw that most of the judges were also men. And I remember just thinking to myself that I want to change this. You know, this, this has to change. Women have a bigger role to play. Women have much more to give in, in, in situations where we see other women like us who are victims and really, my desire was um, I wanted to study this area. I wanted to be able to assist these women victims. And uh, I remember also that when I was in university, I was greatly inspired by my professors and uh, especially by the reality when I, when I was at home, by the reality that I saw around me. So, and as, as I said, I just wanted to do something that would remedy this situation. I wanted to change things. And uh, I think this is what has informed my path throughout. Uh, from a very early age, I wanted to study law. I wanted to be uh, uh, in, this, in this field. I wanted to change uh, through the implementation of the law, the behaviors of those who are capable of committing this, these crimes. Because, uh, um, Sanam, I do believe, then I believe, but also now I do believe that the, the, the power of the law is a potent tool. It's a potent tool that we can use to prevent, that we can use to stop, and that we can use to especially pacify communities. So this is, this is really what has been guiding me. This is what has been pushing me from the time that uh, I graduated from university, joined my um, attorney general's office and served as prosecutor, and uh, um, rising to the highest level, this has always been what is driving me. And, and until now, serving as a prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, this is what drives me, justice. Justice for victims of these crimes. 
and uh, I, 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 I guess uh, this is what I have been trying to do uh, at this level for the past nine years. Thank you so much. It's um, it's so interesting to hear the personal drive and and. You know, it's like, is it something that we have in us innately? Is it the environment that creates it? But it just seems that when, when we, whether it's, whether you're doing it through the law or you're doing it at the community level, it seems that it's a calling for a lot of people. It, it, it's hard to kind of teach it. It's just, it's, it seems to be a calling that, that drives it. But I wanted to, um, uh, to pick up on, on, on a point that you talked about in terms of the rule of law and the law being sort of the framing of enabling justice or enabling pre- prevention um, of, of, of crimes, changing behaviors, bringing peace and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, seeing the spaces that we're talking about, right? That, that what happens when um, the entities that are meant to uphold the law and are responsible for upholding the law are either absent or, or, or themselves actually perpetrating the violence. So, so th- this, this reality that, that, that we see around the world. Um, and I'm going to ask, again, go back, going back to Hamsatu and Muna, what does that look like in your context? Is, is this a factor in your context? When we talk about Yemen and Nigeria, what do you see? What is it like for ordinary people? And, and what does it mean when, when the state is either not there or the state itself is also... Um, implicated? How does that make people feel? And, and what's the reality that you live with? Because I think it's very hard for us to imagine it if, if we've never experienced it. Okay. Muna, can you go? Okay. Well, I, first of all, I just want to say that I can listen to uh, Her Excellency Chief Prosecutor um, uh, all day. Every time she says justice, it shakes me. Um, remembering all the atrocities that have been uh, committed to the to my people. So I'm sorry, I'm a, a bit emotional about that, but I hope one day we will see justice for our people. So uh, going back to your question, um, Yemen has no real functioning central government and uh, the state institutions uh, continue to really work under unelected uh, officials and uh, armed groups. Uh, the government of Yemen is largely dependent on its foreign patrons, such as the Saudis and the Emiratis, um, and um, they don't really have a good presence. Also, um, uh, although uh, currently they have been back to Yemen, which is a good start, but um, uh, the civilians are really suffering from uh, the destroyed infrastructure, lack of fuel, basic services, abuse of local authorities. Uh, a weak state, a weak security forces, basically fragmented governance. And that is very scary for those of us in the ground and uh, or those who are working um, uh, on uh, on Yemen. Uh, the economy has been ravaged by the years of co- conflict. And um, so the, the the absence of of the of the state or the government structure has really um, caused more fragmentation in, on, on the ground. And um, for instance, there have been like hundreds of cases documented uh, on uh, uh, disappeared uh, persons, um, detainees, and, um, and all of the, um, the intelligence and security um, uh, agencies and the institutions and the ministries, everything is split um, between the um, between the 
the the Houthis and the the government controlled structures which are still there but they're not really functioning so all of this is causing the suffering of uh, millions of people uh, and there's also caused violence uh, of both sides against the people it's caused hunger it's caused disease uh, and um, and we're also lacking an effective court system um, the Yemeni people often start to resort to tribal forms of justice and customary law um, it's helped the tribal system is really uh, helpful but sometimes it's not um, and um, so yeah basically the the this vacuum of the state has really caused um, so much more uh, cycles of violence and I will uh, over to you Hamsato. Thank you very much. Really, the state is not really there. Honestly, as the ungoverned spaces keep expanding, and then there is a state of confusion. In fact, armed groups like the insurgents, the bandits, the herdsmen, the kidnappers, um, all of them are springing up, and then the target is nearly, you can't even understand what they are looking for because then their main targets become women and then smaller children. So abduction of women and girls has now in fact spread from northeastern Nigeria to cover the whole of the north and is rolling down to the southern Nigeria. In fact, women have turned to be like, in fact, women are even equated to animals because viral videos of gunmen and insiders, you can hear them telling, should you see a woman that appeals to you, let us know we are going to rustle them not even kidnap or abduct them, wrestle them, wrestle them like cows. So if I say Nigeria is just living like an animal kingdom, I think I am not regretting it. And then I, I, this, is, or this is what we are. So therefore, in fact, the viral videos and, uh, of women being raped along the highway, gang and serially raped along the highways, in the streets, in their homes, in the host communities, and even within their own families, has become, in fact, a norm now across northern Nigeria. And then in a situation like this, where do you say the government is? It is, in fact, we are in real state of confusion. And then these ladies who have gone and then come back are coming back with children and babies, babies who even the mothers that born them do not know who their fathers are because they are kept in a sex colony and then sexually abused. And then now, and take, for example, this abduction now has led to reduction or even complete loss of access to education, which is a human rights. According to the, S the SDG number four, goal number four, is about education, provision of inclusive quality education for all. But in our own context, this kind of treatment of women, girls, and children is now making access to education completely difficult, hence, in fact, the rights of these women and then these young children have been impinged, impinged on. Now, with the abduction of Chibo girls about 270 something or seven years ago, we thought it would have been an eye opener to Nigerian authorities to stop this kind of thing. But rather, it now is, is it has now become a norm. In fact, to the extent that abduction of school children and women is now becoming a national emergency in Nigeria, while nobody talks, not even the communities that these women live in. In fact, when I reach out to certain people in communities, yeah, they tell me, oh, we are even tired of watching these videos, 
we are tired of getting this kind of things. And then for us in northeastern Nigeria, this kind of stories, you will never even hear them. You will never see them making headlines, not even in local media, because of fear of retribution, because in most cases, some of them, the state actors are, are affected. Because the ordinary Nigerian woman or survivor will tell you that Nigerian um, security agents are even worse than Boko Haram. So in this, this is the situation that we are living with in our part of country. And then for those of us who are activists, and then women at our age, like uh, standing as mothers and grandmothers, then we have to take up the challenge and then create platforms for these kind of survivors to now see how we can bring them, build their capacity, give them skills, rehabilitate them, give them um, whatever so that even, even teach them um, our traits and even empower them with some small petty caches so that they can take the burdens of them and then treat them of the psychological distresses and the traumas that they have gone through simply because the state has failed to protect them, not even their parents or their communities who are there when these women and girls are being subjected to this kind of loss of dignity and then humanity as even humans. So these are the kind of things we are in fact living with. So do we call in such a situation, do we say the state is our present? Because the number one responsibility of a state is to protect its citizens. When it cannot protect its citizens, and then when they are violated and so subjected to all this humiliation, the state is no nowhere, in fact, to even rehabilitate them and then bring them back to, uh, to normalcy. Thank so you. In their situation, in fact, I'm, uh, I'm really I'm, uh, I'm, uh, uh, happy to be come uh, on the same panel with the prosecutor who have, in fact, sometimes they go even um, uh, release a statement on commitment uh, saying that, in fact, where she categorically said, in fact, Nigeria has made all the conditions for ICC to open up investigations. And then we are hoping. But it is very sad that she may be leaving us soon, but I hope she will not forget us to come and then team with us as a fellow African woman to see where we can take this to the next level, even out, out of the ISIS. Thank, thank you, Hamsatu. And, and um, uh, I'm going to come to, to Fat Fatu. When you hear Hamsatu saying that that it's become normalized, yes. that that you know, we're not shocked. It's just become the norm. It, it to me, it, it's, it feels a little bit like, you know, going back to the 1990s when we were shocked by the rape camps in Bosnia and the, and the rape in Rwanda and the genocide. And now it's happening, you know, whether it's Rohingya or whether it's elsewhere, it, these things have, we've become numb to them. Yes. Have we become numb? How, why is it that these horrific practices Kind of perpetuate, but but on a personal level, when you hear this, how does it make you feel? Um, and and yeah, and yeah. and the burden. Um, I'm I'm glad that uh, um, Hamsatu spoke about the state responsibility. Um, the ICC is about individual criminal responsibility, but also it was founded on the principle of cooperation and complementarity. I think uh, one of the thinkings behind creating and establishing the, the ICC was that so that impunity will no longer be an option. Of course, the primary responsibility to investigate and prosecute will still remain that of the state. 
But by establishing the ICC, we're now saying that if the state does not take up this responsibility, either because it is unable or because it is unwilling, maybe for political reasons or other reasons, then you are part of this institution, which will take up the responsibility to investigate and prosecute. And this is what, uh, the, why the ICC was created to fill that space, that space where we have, and we have seen this several times. We have seen this on many occasions in which these atrocity crimes are committed on the territory of a state party. That is where we have jurisdiction on the territory of a state party. And then nothing is done. I mean, they, they, they drag their feet. I think uh, Hamsatu has described it very, very well. Um, and uh, you are right. Recently, I, I decided that the criteria has been met, for instance, in the situation in Nigeria for investigations to be opened. Because um, I, I spoke about complementarity is when we assess that the state is actually doing something. It's investigating and prosecuting the case or has investigated and prosecuting, prosecuted the case, then the ICC will not stop in, will not step in to, to investigate and, and prosecute those same crimes, especially it is, if it is based on the same conduct that we have already identified. In the case of, <clears throat> in the case of Nigeria, unfortunately, we have not uh, seen that. And in all the other situations that we have opened, whether it's on the African continent or outside of the African continent, this is an assessment that we make. States must, must take up that responsibility to investigate and prosecute. But if they do not, and ICC has jurisdiction, we will certainly step in to investigate and hold those who perpetrate these crimes to account. Those, because as I said, ICC is about individual criminal responsibility. Of course, our work has to be supported at the domestic level. Because again, I said ICC was uh, founded on the principles of complementarity and cooperation. We need that cooperation to be able to do the investigations uh, uh, um, that we should on the on the territory that is affected affected by these by these crimes. Um, it is not always very easy. Uh, I can tell you that uh, we we are able to assume that jurisdiction and also to investigate without having difficulties and problems. Sometimes this is perceived as ICC is uh, 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 just targeting this country for one reason or the other, everything else except that the law allow us, allows us to do that. And for that reason, we have uh, um, uh, lack of cooperation and difficulty in, in investigating in these, in these situations. And therefore, the space that you talk about, Hamsatu uh, and, and Sanam, that space is created that uh, in which we have to find ways to go around it, to be able to investigate and, uh, and prosecute these crimes. It's, it's always a challenge, but it doesn't mean that one has to give up and not do it. As long as our jurisdiction has been established in accordance with the law, the Rome Statute in this case, and the evidence that we have before, before us, we, we always uh, attempt to fill that gap, to fill that space and be able to investigate and prosecute uh, these, these atroc atrocity crimes. Thank you. I, I'm going to come back to you on this. Um, 
because I'm not sure how many people actually understand how the system works, right? Yes. So um, when you say uh, that you, you know, I when I you know I met, I I thought that they met the criteria. This is based on evidence that was already given to you from different sources, or or is it that the court investigates? And from the statutes of the, I, I remember when when the ICC was being set up, that citizens, indiv, you know, individuals or groups of citizens can bring evidence to, to the court. What do they, how do they do that? What, what, what's the kind of a 101 on what does it look like for, for, for our colleagues in so many of these countries where their state is unable or unwilling and, and other actors are in this space? What, how, do, how, do you, how do they go about doing that? All right. Let me just briefly give a background in which ICC can have jurisdiction. Um, first and foremost, there is what is known as territorial jurisdiction. That means that the states who have signed and ratified the Rome Statute, ICC has jurisdiction on the territory of those states' parties. Um, if you have not signed or ratified the uh, Rome Statute, prima facie, we do not have jurisdiction. But I, could, I will explain that further because potential, there is potential, uh, potentially we could have jurisdiction everywhere, all over the world. It depends. Um, so in that case, when a state which is part of the ICC, has crimes committed on their territory, first and foremost, they have the responsibility to investigate and prosecute those crimes. If they do not, if they are unable or they are unwilling, they still are able to um, um, make a referral of that situation to the prosecutor of the ICC to step in and investigate and prosecute. Um, we also will have, uh, when there is no referral in that particular state, where we, where, which is a state party to the Rome Statute, the ICC prosecutor acting under the powers given to the prosecutor under the Rome Statute can also look into the situation, whether there is a referral or not, and will be able to use proprio motor powers to, to, to start investigations or to start preliminary examination into the situation. We have done something similar in, in Afghanistan, for instance. And uh, uh, otherwise, we also will have jurisdiction over nas- nationals of, of, of states parties who commit these atrocity crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, now the crime of aggression. We have jurisdiction over those nationals if they, even if they commit those crimes, uh, especially on the territory of non-state parties, non-state parties. That, 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 and also, we will have a jurisdiction when we have a referral from the United Nations Security Council asking the ICC to intervene in a particular situation to investigate and prosecute. We have had, since ICC started, we've had two referrals from the UN Security Council, and that is uh, Libya, which is a non-state party, and also Sudan. I just wanted to underline here that when the UN Security Council makes a referral, it does not necessarily have to be, it does, it's not a state party to the Rome Statute. It does not have to be a state party to the Rome Statute. That is why both Sudan and Libya, which are not state parties to the, to the Rome Statute, have been referred by the UN Security Council to the ICC to look into the... Um, uh, unfortunately, the the, 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 the crimes and uh, that has been that have been allegedly committed in those different situations, um, and 
And finally, we also would have jurisdiction uh, where a state which is not a party to the Rome Statute makes a declaration and accepts the jurisdiction of the ICC. And I will give you an example we already had. In fact, before Cote d'Ivoire became a state party to the Rome Statute, it had made a declaration even under the former president accepting ICC's jurisdiction. And when the current president came, it also made a further declaration. And then Cote d'Ivoire became a state party. Ukraine also has Uh made a declaration accepting the jurisdiction of the ICC. And that is why we've been able to conduct preliminary examinations into that into that situation. So sometimes it may look, um, uh, uh, um, people would say that ICC is applying double standards, but that is not the case. We only will go to a place under these uh, um, different conditions that I've, uh, I've mentioned, we'll only will go to those places when that jurisdictional aspects of our, uh, is met. Uh, whether it's uh, territorial or whether it's uh, it's it's nationality, uh, and 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 in a way you're you're sort of touching on the next question that that, that we had for you, which is that um, so often it's perceived as if oh the, the ICC only goes to poorer countries or you know and the powerful countries or the powerful leaders get away with it, but but what you're saying is that if you have a Iraq, if you have a state party that um, is let's say has done something bad in Iraq, even if Iraq is not a signatory, they can be investigated. Similarly, as you said, Afghanistan, because it's a signatory, anybody that is perpetual, you know, has perpetuate. Indeed, indeed, those are very good examples that you've cited. Uh, In Iraq, for instance, I had uh, open preliminary examinations in Iraq, not because Iraq is a state party. No, but because we were looking at the conduct of UK forces who, uh, who are state parties to the Rome Statute their conduct in Iraq. So we were able to go in from that angle to look into their conduct in Iraq. Um, but as I said, Iraq is not a state party. But here we were looking, looking at the nationality uh, of those who, who allegedly have committed uh, atrocity crimes on the territory of a non-state party. Likewise, in Afghanistan, we are looking at different uh, groups, of course, We're looking at uh, the conduct of the Taliban. We're also looking at the conduct of the Afghan forces, but also uh, of the the CIA. The U.S. is not a state party to the Rome Statute, but Afghanistan is. And this conduct uh, happened to be on the territory of a state party. Um, I'm sure that amongst our listeners and and even with Mona and Hamsatu, there are lots of questions and and ideas that, that that are coming up. Um, if if um, Hamsatumona, if you have any questions regarding that, or if you have any kind of points around what that looks like, would you would you like to kind of raise them? I mean, what what do you, what are you seeing in the case of Yamona? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- thank you so much. Uh, that's go ahead, Hamsatumona. Um, yeah, thank you very much, uh, Madam, for the future for enlightening us. You have really thrown a lot of light. I really, I'm a guy in the situation in the context that we operate. I can say. These armed groups and then bandits and whatever insurgents and others have assumed such a dimension that they no longer know even the bounds of the state. They know they have utter disregard to rule of law, the rule of nature, or even to the powers of the almighty creator. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. hence, the women are left like this. And then for people like us who are content with powerful actors, 
actors who are even more powerful than the state, because it is only in my country, in Nigeria, that certain things do happen. For example, what about the cases of human rights violations and others when international human rights organizations raise the issue and publish them? You will hear denials coming from the actors that were accused of doing so. And it is only in Nigeria that the same actor that is accused of such violations will now beat its chest to come up and then set up an investigation committee simply because the government is not doing or has no power of doing it. That same body will set up its to investigate itself, exonerate itself, and then go scotch-free. This can happen only in Nigeria. And then even in the case of United Nations, the UN Security Council making reference to the ICC and others, I remember there was, there was a time I addressed the UN Security Council and then when we brought up issues concerning us, especially those of uh, the countries of the uh, surrounding the Chad region, we, I was in fact told by several member states that, well, unless the country, my country, is interested in those kind of things, in fact, there is nothing the UN Security Council or any other body can do. And then for most of the time that I go to UN to address, I will discover that the seat for Nigeria is completely empty, so there is no representation even to carry the message across to Nigeria. So the, uh, the level of compliance is among even signatories to the statute and then member countries of the United Nations leaves a lot to be desired for the ordinary person to get redress and then to get justice. And don't believe you me where there is no justice. So long as there is no justice in this world, really peace and security will continue eluding us and only God knows where we shall reach. So um, uh, while I am, um, I'm just bringing this challenge before you, but then maybe the major appeal I would make is to see how the other the members of the international community, the diplomatic boy and others, can now come to work with the ICC, keeping a strong backing. Because I can't see a situation where my country will perhaps cooperate with the ICC to come and open up an investigation, investigation that eventually will come and affect those corrupt, um, the institutionalized corrupt um, uh, uh, lead uh, whoever is on ground. Definitely, they will never cooperate. But then, the power of the international community and then the diplomatics and others coming together with the ICC can give the ICC even a stronger backing. And then, how do we go about that to see that these kind of things are being looked into and then justice meted to the other uh, I'm sorry, maybe I will I will just um, uh, speak a little bit on the on the current status of the of the preliminary examination or at least uh, opening of investigation. You will you will, it was in December that I made this announcement yes. that we have completed our preliminary examination in Nigeria that we have been conducting in fact since 2010. And during that, during this period, about 10 years of, of preliminary examinations, we have been consulting with, with Nigerian authorities, with the civil society, with every, everybody that we feel that is, uh, uh, is able to provide us with credible information to look at, at, at what is happening in, in Nigeria. And it was only in, in 2020 that I concluded that the criteria to open an investigation into the situation in Nigeria has been met. So the next step I have now is to request the authorization from the judges of the pretrial chamber 
to open the investigations, which I am working on. And of course, I am consulting with the incoming prosecutor uh, on the strategic and the operational issues that are related to the prioritization prioritization of the office's workload, um, because we have issues of resources, uh, lack of resources. So, so we we need to do that. And uh, um, but irrespective of this timing of the investigations uh, of the crimes committed, we continue. We will continue to seek very constructive and collaborative exchange, both with the government and others, just to determine how best justice may be, may be, may be served under, uh, if possible, a shared framework of complementarity, uh, uh, domestic and international action. You mentioned about the international community. I, I, I think that, uh, and I agree with you, that to bring justice to the victims of crimes in Nigeria is a shared responsibility. We have a role to play, but there are others also who have a role to, to, to play in this, in this regard. And as you have mentioned, this has been going on for far too long. Thank you. Um, Mona, did you want to uh, raise a point or question? Yes, thank you. And I'm, um, I think both uh, uh, the chief prosecutor and um, my colleague Hamzato also covered some of what I wanted to say, but I wanted to ask uh, uh, if um, when the uh, international community, the state, the government, they lack the political will to hold the perpetrators of war crimes, including uh, forced displacement, um, torture, murder, cluster bombs, all of which are gendered crimes, um, when they fail to hold these perpetrators accountable, um, for instance, in Yemen, what kind of interventions uh, can the, the Office of the Prosecutor, a Chief Prosecutor, make to help encourage accountability um, and to also raise awareness of these crimes and hold them accountable? Uh, my second question is also, um, what can the civil society do to ensure uh, that the next prosecutor also uh, supports the sexual and uh, gender-based uh, violence policy paper produced by um, uh, Madame Pansuda's uh, office, um, and make sure that the that it continues um, her great work um, to hold these perpetrators accountable. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you, thank you for that uh, question, Muna, and uh, I, as it will give me an, an opportunity to clarify. First and foremost, I will say that Yemen is not a state party to the Rome Statute. It hasn't signed or ratified the Rome Statute. And it has not also made a declaration, uh, as I mentioned before, accepting the jurisdiction of the ICC under Article 12.3. And also, the UN Security Council has uh, also not referred the situation of Yemen to the ICC prosecutor. I'm, I'm just saying that all these uh, uh, criteria, all these uh, which should be fulfilled for, for us to have jurisdiction are, are not there. So the court uh, currently lacks territorial jurisdiction to, to act in Yemen. But it is worth uh, for me to highlight that the court may also exercise personal jurisdiction over nationals of states parties responsible for Rome statute crimes that are committed in Yemen. And this is pursuant to Article 12.2b of the statute. Uh, in, in fact, uh, I will say, Sanam, that for the past several years, my office has received allegations that uh, certain alleged conduct 
may fall within the jurisdiction of the court, given the nationality of particular alleged direct perpetrators or persons who may have otherwise contributed to alleged crimes, uh, who have contributed to alleged crimes and who may have committed uh, uh, crimes um, as parties to the conflict in Yemen. And these allegations will have been brought to our, our attention by various uh, individuals and organizations through communications, which were sub- submitted under Article 15 of the statute. In fact, when you uh, spoke earlier on, you said, how does this happen, this information? We, li- we, receive, we can receive a lot of information from anybody, whether it's states, whether it's NGOs, whether it's individuals. We receive communications informing us of, of of allegations of atrocity crimes that are committed in in various parts uh, of of the world. So we are we are looking we are looking into at the moment what we are doing is uh, we are uh, just looking into these communications that come in. Uh, of course, with the full knowledge that uh, um, we do not have territorial jurisdiction, but also there is a possibility that uh, there are nationals of state parties who could potentially um, have committed crimes in, 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 in Yemen and which we need to do a thorough, thorough assessment based on the information that we collect to be able to um, reach a decision either way after those analyses to see what action, uh, if at all, can be taken in the situation in Yemen. But as I, I will emphasize again, it will depend on having fulfilled all the criteria for to have of having jurisdiction uh, under the Rome Statute, whether uh, it is uh, um, over nationals of states parties, or whether there is a declaration, or whether there is a referral from the UN Security Council, uh, which unfortunately at the moment I do not see it that it is likely to happen. Yeah, and and just as a follow up, and, and and you know, you may not want to answer this, but especially with Yemen, given that the Security Council itself greenlighted and enabled the the bombing of the country, and so many of the permanent members have been selling or facilitating the 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 Saudi uh, bombing, it must be very it must be very difficult to navigate these spaces. I mean, it puts the Yemenis in in a really difficult. Um, Situation, and it must put you in a very difficult. Must must put the court in a very difficult situation as well. I, I imagine the you know, geopolitics comes into the into the mix very heavily there. Well, you know, you, we we have to remember that in in most of the situations or all of the situations, they come with their different challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, the geopolitics are there, but what should always guide us, what has guided us, and will continue to guide the office of the prosecutor and the ICC, is that we go according to what the statute uh, mm-hmm. dictates and what is the evidence that is before us. This is important for us to do because in all the situation that we are faced with, it's fraught with, with, with politics. That's, that's really the, 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 the bottom line of it, that the, the conflict is based on uh, different political views and ideologies. But our considerations for opening an investigation or looking into a situation is not politics. It has to be in accordance with what the statute says, in accordance with the law, the rule of law. That is what will make us intervene. So there will always be politics in whatever situation there will always be. But this this should not and does not inform 
why we intervene or do not intervene. Thank you. Um, and I'm gonna I want to, I'm gonna come to the question of sexual violence in a minute, but just to follow up on this, uh, um, with my when as an Iranian national, but but I was when I think about the, around the world, you know, I wonder how many people know whether their countries or have ratified. The, the 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 statues. I mean, what's the informa- public information? And there's a question from from somebody in the audience saying, "How can civil society researchers, scholars, I would say even the media, help to inform the public about these kinds of issues and what kinds of connections and rights and so forth people have?" Because I think that so often you you, you actually have no knowledge of of how these things work, and then and you know it, it, it's. I mean, the, the thought of investigating the CIA is quite extraordinary for, for, for many people, right? So, so the, uh, kudos to you, and, and I'm going to come to the personal side of this in a, in a minute. But um, what do you? Th- I mean, it, what do you think we need to do from the international human rights, uh, as I say, media, civil society, etc., in terms of supporting groups like you know Hamsatus and, and and others, and informing the public? How does that? How does that happen? What would be helpful from your side? Uh, 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 thank you for that uh, uh, question, um, but uh, and I, I just want to know that p- perhaps one of the main reasons for misunderstanding the court and knowing what the court is not about—I mean, is knowing what the court is is doing. What is the juris- jurisdiction of the court? What are the limitations of jurisdiction of the court? Where the court can go? Where the court cannot go? Um, not many people know this. We have tried over the years, especially recently, to give out as much information as possible. We have our website, um, which is which gives you all the information that we we need. We are now on social media, trying to inform the public of what we are doing and uh, why we're do why we're doing this during trials in preliminary examination phase. We try to give out as much information as possible. But I also think that it is, it is still the responsibility of civil society, who, by the way, played a great role in getting this court established. Civil society really worked very hard for ICC to be established and for certain crimes, so you, you just mentioned sexual and gender-based crimes, to be uh, part of those crimes that uh, the ICC could, uh, could, could look into. So I think it, it is, that responsibility should not go away. We should still, I mean, civil society, academia, students should continue to keep interested in the institution to be able to spread the word about what the court is doing. To, to There is information. If you want to seek information, it is there. And we also are always ready to engage. We are always ready to provide information. So I, I believe that there should be a little big, bit of proactivity again on the part of uh, the court watchers which is civil society, uh, academia, students, and politicians, they should have more uh, interest in trying to spread the word to explain what the ICC is doing and also to dismiss. There's a lot of myth around the court. There's a lot of accusations around the court. The court is uh, uh, not impartial. The court is uh, going after poor countries. The, and this, the, all of this, if you really study and you look at the work of the court, you will know that it, it has no basis. It is really not, uh, not the correct position. So I, I do think that that responsibility to, to know the court and to spread the word, to support the court, to cooperate with the court, so that this very important work that the court was set up to do uh, will be done and will be done effectively. 
Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to come to the to the question of uh, addressing um, different forms of sexual violence, as, as you alluded in. I remember in 2000 when 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 the negotiations were happening around the Rome Statute that the Gender Justice uh, Coalition was really active in defining what kinds of um, actions would constitute uh, sort of would come come on from forms of sexual violence and you know from forced pregnancy to, to forced prostitution to, to to rape and so forth. All of these things come under the the statutes of of um, of the ICC. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what, you know, given your own history, your own kind of calling and history around wanting to address these things, what has the court done? Um, and how do we, you know, is it is it just about punishing the perpetrators or is there actually victim centered justice as well? Um, and these things. And, and again, Amuna and, and Hamsatu, I wonder if you have any thoughts on the kinds of challenges that you're you're facing with the, with the scope of of this kind of violence, it would be interesting to, to to hear. But how do you go after individuals of the type that Hamsatu, for example, mentions? We don't even know who they are, um, or if they are, you know, maybe they're powerful military figures or, or something like that. What what kind of evidence based that, that do you look for, and how do you how do you go about dealing with it? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, let me say this: uh, that the Rome Statute, which establishes the International Criminal Court, is the first international instrument which expressly includes various forms of sexual and gender-based crimes. And uh, these crimes we know, they typically affect women and girls in armed conflict. These are crimes such as rape, sexual slavery, enforced prostitution, forced pregnancy, enforced sterilization, and various forms of sexual violence. And this, the Rome Statute includes these forms of sexual violence as the underlying acts of both crimes against humanity as well as war crimes. And as we, you know, uh, Sanam, we have uh, non-international armed conflicts all over the place as well as uh, international armed conflicts. Um, and and as, as a prosecutor, what, what, what I've always felt um, I, I believe that this is this legal framework that we have, uh, the Rome Statute, um, is a strong legal framework which has been put at my disposal as prosecutor to be able to search for um, evidence during investigations. Um, we, we, we listen to testimonies which, which are uh, of very courageous survivors and, and witnesses. Um, uh, we, we also uh, know this help us to, to, to shape um, during prosecution of these cases. The, 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 the evidence that these courageous people give us is really very, very helpful. But also, I, I would say that uh, investigating sexual and gender-based crimes is, is not very easy. Um, it comes with its challenges. It comes with its problems. Already, investigating atrocity crimes in and of itself is very, very uh, difficult. But when it comes to sexual and gender-based crimes, it's even more challenging uh, because you have various, uh, um, I mean, you know the stigma that is attached to when people know that someone has been uh, subjected to rape, you know, the stigma, which should normally attach to the perpetrator is, is, is attached to this victim. So they do not want to come out, come forward uh, that this has happened to them. And therefore, you have to look for various ways in which you can get this evidence. 
uh, by the investigators you send, by the methods you use, by how you speak with them, by the atmosphere that you set for them to be able to speak to you. And also by taking up uh, um, uh, protection issues such that these persons who give, the, give you their stories are not also exposed and doubly traumatized. So all of these are things that we have to do at our level to, became, uh, to, be, to be able to um, uh, carefully um, investigate and prosecute these crimes. And I will tell you that uh, when I became prosecutor of the ICC in 2012, I, I made it a personal commitment to devote as a matter of priority, especially uh, for sexual and gender-based crimes, to devote in enhancing the effectiveness of my office's work in this area, um, just to ensure that we have greater accountability. So I launched a policy paper in June of 2014, which was dedicated to sexual and gender-based crimes, which uh, we decided to take a systematic approach to investigating and prosecuting these crimes at the office. And uh, the, the, the policy itself contains directives, key directives and guidance for my staff who are doing this work to be able to obtain quality and uh, uh, sufficient evidence that would, would, would help us to secure these convictions. And I can tell you that this policy paper has been in implementation since the time that we, we adopted it in 2014. And I will also say that we have proudly made uh, a lot of progress in various cases that we are now, uh, for instance, in the Dominic Ongwen case, we've, we've just uh, had a conviction uh, in that case, in Boskontaganda case as well. We have had uh, um, uh, this, this conviction during the course of investigations also. We analyzed information that we, we, we receive regarding uh, sexual and gender-based crimes uh, from Venezuela to Ukraine. In, uh, we have we looked into various allegations of sexual violence against girls in the IDP camps, for instance, in Nigeria. And also incidents, uh, including rapes and sexual violence in Myanmar uh, in the context of the alleged deport deportation of the Rohingya. So we're doing a lot of work and we, my office is focusing a lot of attention to address uh, the issue, the scourge of sexual and gender-based crimes in conflict. Thank you very much. We're getting a lot of questions around the, the specificities of, you know, how do you define crimes of aggression and so forth. But I think that people should, maybe we should refer them to, the, to read the statutes because it's fairly clear. Um, uh, uh, but um, I wanted to come back to, 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 the, to the three of you with, with some of the questions that we're getting from people, which is that... Um, and Hamsatu, this came to you, but I, but I think it, it, I think it goes for all three of you that what gives you the strength to carry on and do what you do? Um, are you safe? Uh, you know, and Mona, same, same for you. What gives you the strength? And, 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 and for you, Fatu, um, one of the questions that came was, you know, when you have the sang, like when the, when we had the, the sanctions from the U.S. placed on you and, and, the, and the travel ban, both on a personal level, but also professionally, how does that how does how does that make you feel? And and what and the next question related to that is how can people help? You know, how, and 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 again, coming back coming back to the to the purpose of this of this platform, we wanted to make sure that that the audience actually understands what, what goes on that that these issues have a pers take a personal toll on people's lives as well who are, who are at the front line. So I don't know if you, if you have the 
if you have the strength to, to go that down to that to that level of what gives you the strength, what are you worried about? Um, how how does it it's going to affect you and and what, when you get targeted like that? Hamsati, would you like to start? Thank you very much. In fact, I really appreciate the concern and then the care people are showing us. But actually, as a Muslim, in fact, um, I entrust my safety and security to my, to my the Almighty Creator. But then, in fact, apart from that, then what? Come to think of the women and then the young girls and the children that I, I, I for example, I, I directly work with. The resilience in this kind of people. This is a context. I think even in Nigeria, the kind of things that happen in those eastern part of Nigeria can never be tolerated in other zones, even within Nigeria. Why? Because we are the most underdeveloped, we are the most voiceless, and then we are the least educated. So therefore, for a woman and children helplessly coming out of such a context and then coming to show you that she is actually determined not only the survivors of sexual violence, but including the relations of victims of disappearance and of disappearances and others, who are all women, coming to show you their helplessness in a context where government doesn't respond. And then the community leaders, men especially, are even afraid. And But that women are determined, determined to go to any extent to seek for accountability for their missing husbands and sons, and then to seek for the uh, survivor to seek for ordinary recognition that they have been neglected, their rights have been violated, and nobody has protected them. Even that recognition is a good thing, big, good beginning for them. And then these women are eager, in fact, for the children, children now in their thousands, living in IDP camp, children of captivity without fathers, who bears responsibility in a conservative context like ours. Huh? where if a child born out of wedlock is considered illegitimate and doesn't belong to anybody. And then for the single mother who is an illiterate, who doesn't have any means of livelihood or not even shelter or whatever, the challenge are in thousands. So these kind of people, and then for me now coming to think of my age, having the privilege of being educated by public funds, I did not attend any expensive school. My parents were not very rich, but middle class, but having afforded me the education and then God giving me this long life to witness all this, I think this is a period of giving back. And then when you are giving back, the question of fear does not even arise. And look at now, the support, the massive support we are getting internationally. Sanam, for example, since 2016, in fact, her organization was supporting me as an individual, coming to encourage me to register so that they can support me to what I am doing better. And then they are always around me, should anything happen in Nigeria? Where are you? Are you safe? What can we do? And then now if I'm networking me across the world to other internationals so that we can amplify the voices of these victims and then the victims' relations and survivors that we work with. All these are healing and then source of strength, honestly, to me. And today, even now, I am seated with a, uh, in a panel with the um, prosecutor of the ICC whom I believe, even after her tenure, will not abandon us, but come with us so that we can carry this mission forward. I'm sure Sanam is there. She will not allow her even go away without fulfilling some of the promises and pledges that she needs. So therefore, all these are our strength. In fact, they are a healing factor to us. And we translate same, this same 
factors and then attributes to the uh, down uh, to the wretched poor women that we work with. And then we are ever willing to keep mobilizing them, to keep giving them skills, to keep giving, healing them of their trauma and psychological distresses. Now you see, you need to see some of them. They have changed. They have become leaders. They are mobilizers. They are change makers. And then what else will make a life of an individual more fulfilling than this? To see that you are making a difference in the life of someone who has lost all of impact. This is my strength. And then for you who are now throwing these questions to us also, now we urge you to ampli keep amplifying, in fact, publicizing the kind of works we do, amplify the works, our work, so that people know the uh, challenges we are living with, the challenges other human beings in this part of the world are also facing, so that together we can network and then bring a difference to the world. And I believe at the end of the day, we are going to make it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Mona. You, giving back, getting strength, does that resonate uh, with you? Yes, Mama Hamsato is always my inspiration and strength. Um, I, I believe in what uh, maybe Howard Zinn once said, that uh, if you join a, a fight for social justice, you may win or lose, but just by being part of that struggle, you win, and your life uh, will be better for it. I believe in that. And I also uh, believe that um, I'm responsible for the community. I have a, a responsibility. I'm privileged. Um, I'm the voice of voiceless women and, and children and people and families in Yemen. Um, and um, what Hamzato also said, that when we see uh, some part of the conflict transforming, a life transforming for the better, the youth changing into a more nonviolent um uh, way, um, all of this really, um, I think, really uh, keeps me going and motivated. Um, I think it's a healing process. Um, and I, I, I think it's also, especially that I'm in the humanitarian uh, sphere, um, I think it's really important to um, that we gain the trust of the people so that we are able to really impact and I think that is something that has really helped me, motivated me, but also kept me strong and kept me uh, much more safer than, um, I mean, I would say that in a, in a context like in Yemen, where everybody's mobilizing you to be with one party or the other, you're never safe. You're never safe, especially if you're speaking about all the parties and all the atrocities. But um, I think, um, and it's very challenging, especially um, on the ground. Um, I remember when I was mediating with some of the armed uh, groups to, um, uh, to evacuate some of the orphans and the cancer patients uh, between the crossfire. It was so difficult. It's so, um, it's so challenging that you have to, um, uh, they, they can be provoked really easily. Um, and so I think that um, I call it the, the code barrier. Um, shared humanity. Um, I usually use that. Um, for instance, um, it's it's um, we used it by um, establishing the first bakery uh, for IDPs in Taz, and then it rolled out to be more and more uh, of tens of bakeries in in Yemen. But what we did is that many of them would say that you have to. Um, work with the, in this side of the city and not on this side of the city. But for us, we, we said this is the bread. We use the bread as a kind of metaphor or a tool uh, to um, 
to increase or enhance the, the humanity in all of us. And so they would all come together. We would encourage them to all distribute together even. Uh, and I think that was really important because bread was the kind of um, uh, the, the only option for survival. And we also used it as a humanitarian kind of uh, to, to, um, to a certain extent uh, collaborate between them. And I think th this has really um, helped because soon, uh, sooner uh, uh, they started uh, trusting us more. Uh, it really enhanced our reputation and it gave me uh, and others um, more uh, opportunity to um, try to address the underlying causes of violence um, and uh, be more trusted in the community. Um, we're also striving for inclusivity, um, supporting marginalized groups and giving them an equal voice also. And I think that's also helpful. Um, and I think it decreases some of the threats that we uh, face. Uh, the law, warlords have used everything against us, especially uh, women uh, who have been outspoken uh, by smear campaigns, by so many other things. But we keep on going uh, because we, we see... Um, we have um, a dream for our children um, to be able to play in playgrounds without having a bomb uh, on their heads, uh, killing them or maiming them or a landmine or a sniper. Um, and so and that is really what keeps me going and struggling for these people, not for the elite, not for the politicians and not for the military uh, actors on the ground. It's for the people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mona. So, um, uh, Fatou, Again, your own story of what it must feel like to be where you are, being targeted, being, I don't know whether you get the smears that the peace builders get as well, but yes. um, yeah, the, and the question around the, the, the sanctioning, if you're, if you're able to answer. Sure. Um, uh, firstly, I, 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 I mean, I, I believe, or, or I, um, we must be all convinced that the reason why the ICC was established, the raison d'etre for establishing the ICC is to give justice to the victims, to the victims of these crimes who otherwise would probably have nowhere to turn to. I mean, we have talked about the spaces in which nothing is happening. And uh, those who have the responsibility to uh, investigate those crimes and bring justice to the victims will not do it for one reason or another. So the ICC being there, it's really to, 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 uh, uh, to pluck that gap, to, to fill that gap and ensure that uh, victims at least have an institution to turn to and, uh, and, and, and to, to hope that justice will be, be done in their, in their stead. So for this reason, um, I, I think it is uh, critically important to keep this institution alive and to support it for the uh, benefit of victims of, of, of these crimes to ensure that they have justice. I, I, and, and, and we must take sides. We really must take sides in, this, uh, in these situations. I remember uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu saying that you have to, to, to be on one side, either those who perpetrate these crimes or those who suffer these crimes. And I choose to be on the side of those who suffer these crimes. I choose to be on the side of the victims. And I, I would say that the, the, being the prosecutor of the ICC has afforded me that opportunity to be able to do everything in my power to ensure that uh, in the situations where we have jurisdiction and where we are working, 
that victims of those uh, of these crimes uh, deserve and that they have justice. So this is this is what I have uh, uh, been 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 trying to do, and I have uh, also uh, we've done this at, at at great expense, great personal expense uh, of safety of uh, of uh, targeting, as you as you rightly said. The the unfortunate thing that we see is that, and both uh, Hamsatu and and Muna has have alluded to that is the fact that people personalize issues they personalize it in as as prosecutor of the ICC I'm doing this work because I'm mandated I'm elected by over 120 20 states parties to be the prosecutor of the ICC and to do this work but when people judge they look at Fatu Ben Suda and then the attacks are personal. They try to harm you personally. They try to do things to, to people that are close to you and, and all sorts of things because you're doing this work that you have been mandated to do. If I am not sitting on this seat, I probably, uh, not probably, I will not be doing this, this work. But, but unfortunately, whether it's people, whether it's states, they personalize and then, then they go after you, uh, 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 on, on personal basis and try to, to, to harm you or bring you inconveniences that would prevent you from, from doing your job. And this is exactly what happened when the sanctions were imposed on, on me. You mentioned that. I, I, uh, it is very public and I do not uh, mind to speak about it. Um, as you know, in uh, 2020, last year, I was uh, sanctioned together with another colleague of the ICC uh, in my office uh, by the Trump administration for um, investigating or op- wanting to open investigations in, uh, in Afghanistan uh, over US, U.S. personnel or their allies uh, in this particular case in Israel. And uh, I was sanctioned. Uh, I was uh, um, uh, my accounts were blocked, and uh, I was uh, named, uh, uh, I think, uh, a, designate, a designated uh, person. It, I mean, that's 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 the term they they use. I was designated as a person who has been sanctioned, and therefore uh, it affected my accounts. It affected my uh, travel to the U.S. travel ban to the U.S. And uh, also affected uh, my colleague uh, Pakiso Mochichoko, but also other unnamed individuals in the in the office who who probably we would have found out if they um, uh, that they were travel ban also against them. So this has really, I must say, had an impact on my work as prosecutor. In the first instance, uh, operationally, which is more important for me than and than anything else. Operationally, I would I, I w- was not even able to directly task those staff in my office doing important work, but who were of American nationality. I couldn't because the 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 the, uh, san- the sanctions uh, would affect them directly, and they would uh, they would suffer consequences for that. So we had to create uh, with my team. We had to create a way in which we could function without having uh, and changing the reporting lines 
so that they would not even report to me directly and I would not uh, task them directly. And this had to be done by my deputy and other, other staff in my office. So we created firewalls. We changed reporting lines. We, 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 we tried uh, um, uh, as much as possible to work around the... the, the, the I, I cannot go into detail because I know I will take a lot of time. But I can tell you that it just created a lot of inconveniences for me as prosecutor of the ICC with the responsibility to lead this office to be able to work with all of my team together uh, because, of, because of the sanctions. Um, we, uh, we, we, of course, welcome the fact that the Biden administration has now reversed that, has lifted the sanctions, and that uh, things are going back to normal. And uh, that we are seeking, both uh, uh, the U.S. and ourselves, to re-engage um, on, 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 of course, on a footing based on uh, mutual respect for the work that we do and, and what they also uh, 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 do as, uh, uh, I mean, as a government, as a state. So this is, this is what we are looking to now in which other state parties of the Rome Statute, as well as NGOs, we are all looking to really uh, have a new new beginning um, with the ICC as far as the U.S. is concerned. You will recall that the U.S. had been uh, um, uh, a very cooperative non-state party with the ICC prior to the Trump administration, and that certain... Uh, um, in, in many of our cases, we've received assistance, for instance, in the arrest of Boscon Taganda, also Dominic Ongwen. And uh, we have been having various uh, support from the U.S. Uh, uh, government uh, and cooperation from the U.S. government prior to the Trump administration. Unfortunately, when that administration came in, it became very aggressive towards the ICC and very hostile and uh, which landed us in with the executive order because the my office so uh, me and my team would would uh, take on certain very hot uh, um, cases which i think according to the trump administration we should not and and it brings me we have a few minutes left and um uh, i just wanted to you know when we're looking at the scanning the horizon um Many of the countries that are either undergoing conflict or um, are, you know, sort of on the wrong side, if you want, of, of geopolitical relations um, are being subjected to really tough things like sanctions, right, which is actually having a humanitarian effect. Again, as, a, as an Iranian, this is something that, that we look at, especially with the COVID question. Other things that we're seeing and that have kind of really um Arisen during, but you know, it was it was kind of there, but but during this COVID era, we're seeing a lot more of it. Is the rise of hate speech and kind of radicalization online, which which then has kind of um, impact in in real life for people. Do you do you anticipate the court um, evolving to to tackle these types of um, d- developments that that have a could have an impact in terms of you know whether it's whether they have kind of they end up constituting war crimes or crimes against humanity or some kind of, you know, very severe um, implications for, for civilians on the ground. Do you see the court evolving in that direction or how, you know, what do we do um, moving forward in terms of, in terms of the sort of the nature of the court, but also the, 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 the changing environment that, that, that we're all dealing with. Um, okay. This is, this is uh, um this is a topic that I may find uh, uh, 
um, a little bit difficult to, 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 to dwell in because we do have a, a situation currently mm-hmm. um, that we are, uh, we've been asked to look at and which my, my office is looking at very closely um, and which has to do with uh, these collective sanctions. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would be... Um, uh, you can't. Uh, yes. You can't talk. Okay. Okay. But it's... To express, I, yes, to, yeah. to, to express my views yeah. uh, on that, uh, because, I mean, I know that whatever I do say uh, mm-hmm. will be, it could be possibly taken out of context or maybe seen to be prejudging a situation that is uh, still um, um, very active in my case. So I, uh, I probably would. Uh, That's, yes. I, but the, but just, just the, the fact that it is, that we're touching on something that is live and is and is present is is kind of interesting because I don't think people would even even known that collective sanctions could possibly be um, in in the in the realm of, of your work. But 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 thank you for at least try at least sort of saying that it's it's you know we're not crazy thinking about these things. Um, no, it, it, no, absolutely not, absolutely not. I, I I think it is it is very legitimate to think about them. Mm-hmm. Um, just that at the moment I'm not able to say uh, much about about it uh, for fear of being seen as a prejudging a situation that is before me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, in our last five minutes, Mike, I'm going to go back to our personal side of the story. And 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 for each of you, um, I guess two things. One is, um, you know, we've talked a lot about being women in these spaces, but th- is it... Are you are you conscious of what it means? What differences are there? Differences in terms of being women in, in this kind of work that you're trying to to engage in? Is it a is it a superpower? Is it a um, or is it detrimental in some ways? That that's kind of one one aspect of it. And the second is again, especially um, Fatih, since since you're ending your tenure, but also for for Hamsato and and Mona. I mean, Hamsato, you keep telling us your mama Boko Haram and you're older. I I feel the same. It's, it's sort of we're older than a lot of the people that we work with, but. What's your, what legacy do you hope to leave? And what would be your message to your either to your 20-year-old self or to, to the students that are listening now? Um, so, so kind of a combination of, of these, these things, you know, the difference in terms of being a woman in these spaces, your legacy and, and the message that you would, you would give to, to, to younger women. Thank you. And, and, and then I will wrap up and, and we will end at uh, around 11.30. My time. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. In fact, I'm uh, being a woman at my age as a mother and then a grandmother. In fact, age has some respects uh, that accompany it. And then um, uh, with this respect, then there is also the knowledge. Knowledge, one of the contexts that I operate in, and then the context of the local situation that I am handling. And then also, I am also grounded at least in the kind of situation that are happening around me and that I chose to work with. So that when I speak, in fact, I am speaking of undisputable things based on my experience as someone who is, as Sanam always said, locally rooted and then globally connected too. So therefore, in fact, to me, being a woman operating in this context with this little knowledge, I think is a superpower because I can't imagine a man doing the kind of work I do in that context. 
And then, uh, uh, yeah, otherwise, people, a lot of my Muslim sisters in other parts of the world will tell me they have been threatened, they have been challenged, this and that. But believe you me, in the work I am doing in Northeastern Nigeria, dangerous context as it is, I have never been threatened by any armed Rather, my challenge rather comes from the state actors who have even once arrested me and then taken me to the detention facility, but later released. So therefore, in this kind of context, my appeal to students and others who are now watching us is to understand the context that we are working and that as women peace builders, human rights defenders and others, there are certain things we need. The question of our government supporting people like us to work, do the kind of work we are doing does not even arise. It's completely off the track. So therefore, without the international support that we enjoy from Sanam's organizations and the like, people like me wouldn't have done what I am doing. Recently, when I won a, a small grant from the United Nations Victim of Torture Fund to engage survivors, out of the 20 survivors that I engaged to work with, they are, of course, survivors of Boko Haram abduction. But when we came to take them in, I am completely devastated to learn that all these 20 survivors that I interviewed have equally suffered the same violation or even worse from the hands of Nigerian security agents. So therefore, doing this kind of work in a situation, in a corrupt situation, in a failing system like ours, we need honestly the support of all of you as students, as donors, as friends and others to connect with us, connect us internationally with your own networks for collaboration so that people understand the kind of challenges other human beings are facing in other Thank parts you. of the world and Thank resource you. us to bring others so collectively we can do it together. Thank you. Thank you, Hamsatu. I'm we're short on Quick, quick, quick. Uh, I, yeah, I hope quick. we can cut off. Yeah. Just, uh, I think that uh, the warring parties have disagreed on everything uh, about Yemen and they have agreed on one thing to attack the women <laughs> so it's just, and exclude them. So I think it is uh, challenging. But I do think also we'll, we have a privilege uh, to be women. For me, in my humanitarian work, I think uh, um, I, I have more accessibility and uh, more respect. And I'm also like the mother of the poor also there that I'm called. And I think that um, I think it, there is a leverage um, uh, there. Um, and um, my other point is that uh, for our students, um, I just want to say, Sanam, that the, I'm seeing and I'm, I'm researching with the Crook uh, Institute and I have also students that we're exchanging there. I am seeing an amazing generation of uh, social justice leaders around the world. And I'm really happy to see that. Uh, and I think that they uh, they have already um, amplified a lot of our uh, suffering in Yemen and around the world. I think we need to do more. Uh, my only um, um, uh, advice would be that to believe in change, believe in transformation uh, and believe in peace. Uh, sometimes these uh, conflicts seem that out of our uh, power, out of our reach, and we're not able to do anything. The warring parties want us to, to think that so they can continue. There's a big war economy behind this, and they want us to believe that we can't do anything, but we can. We've seen it. We've brought people to justice. Recently, we brought um, 
uh, a big perpetrator to uh, to the UN Security Council uh, sanctions, uh, who had committed a lot of uh, sexual uh, based violence uh, crimes, Sultan Zabin. We've seen a lot of, uh, we have seen some sort of justice and we're not going to leave it there. We're going to join hands. And I, um, um, I just ask you all to join hands with us, amplify our voices. Um, and I just want to say at the end that um, uh, war in Yemen affects the whole world. Uh, the impact of the ongoing violence and the armed conflict and the lawless states will evolve beyond Yemen. And it's a collective global responsibility for all of us to end it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Fatou Bensouda, the last word is yours, um, your legacy. And, and thank you so much. I'm going to thank everybody for everything that we're doing in case I lose you and to the audience for, for being with us. But the last word is definitely yours. And what a pleasure to have you have all three of you um, with us. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you very much, Sanam. And uh, Mona, I think that is the spirit, what you have uh, just said about women uh, staying relevant. Because I, I do believe that women have a unique understanding of the adverse impact that violence has on themselves, on their children, and on societies. And including women in when we are developing government policies uh, during peacetime and making women participate in resolving and preventing war crimes and mass violence is, is giving a voice to a group that is intensely affected by conflict, but are rarely participants in the decisions that lead to that conflict. And I, I believe that to temper war and conflict, we must increasingly empower women. I, I don't believe in generalizations. And I do think that both sexes have an incredible potential to build but also to destroy. I mean, we are, we are human beings after all. But I also believe that with the direct and meaningful involvement of women in decision-making processes, it can be reasonably deduced that the likelihood of conflict and violations of the laws of war can decrease, while the prospects for sustainable peace is enhanced. I, I have lived and I have seen this in many, many examples. I've seen it in my own line of work where women push the envelope with the law as the tool to extend greater protection to the vulnerable during armed conflict. And I've seen it also in my beloved continent of Africa, where women are at the forefront of making peace for foolish, destructive wars that are started by others. And I see it in the important work of our host here today, the Center for Women, Peace and Security. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Thank you again to all of you. Uh, the, this event will be um, available as a recording and as a podcast. And join us again in March, uh, in May, um, for the next session. Thank you very, very much. Bye bye. Thank you.